Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. Justice Breyer has announced his retirement from the Supreme Court, and I have hit the jackpot in terms of my next guest, who's here to talk about what should happen next. He served in the United States Senate for 18 years. While he was in the Senate, he sat on the Judiciary Committee, where he helped pick the nation's judges and Supreme Court justices, and he now serves as president of the American Constitution Society. Please welcome Russ Feingold. Welcome to the podcast, Russ Feingold. What an auspicious time to have you. Thank you for joining me. Your timing is very good. I was looking forward to it anyway, but with the big news about Justice Breyer, it's particularly exciting. Indeed, uh, because today, as we record this, Justice Breyer has announced that he's retiring from the Supreme Court. You, of course, served in the United States Senate, serving the great state of Wisconsin for 18 years. During that time, you sat on the Judiciary Committee. You confirmed a number of justices. What are your thoughts about Justice Breyer's replacement? Well, the first thing I want to do is pay tribute to Justice Breyer, who made a good decision, but the most important thing is that he has been a superb justice. I had the honor of voting for him after a very good normal confirmation process years ago, and I have been so happy to see his role on the United States Supreme Court. He is 83 though, and he has decided to step down. And this is an historic opportunity for President Biden. And I'm confident not only that he's gonna do something very exciting and, and, and unique in our history, in nominating uh, an African-American woman, the first time in American history that that will be the case if that person is nominated and confirmed. And I also believe that the U.S. Senate is going to return to the proper procedure for considering Supreme Court nominations after having terribly violated the traditions and norms in the last couple of uh, appointments under President Trump. Explain what you mean by that. Uh, you are now president of the American Constitution Society. We can talk a little bit later uh, about specifically the work of ACS, but tell us what you mean when you suggest that the confirmation norms were flouted. Be specific. Well, we at the American Constitution Society feel that one of the most important things in our country for our constitution and the rule of law is that the Supreme Court be legitimate and be perceived as legitimate. And for that to happen, you have to have justices put on the court in a fair procedure. But that was not what was done when Justice Scalia died. President Obama had a whole year almost left in his term. He should have been able to not just nominate somebody, but have that person considered. And that wasn't done. That was the longest period in American history, hundreds of days, where they didn't even let him have a chance and they waited till somebody else got to be president. And they did the other thing. They did the reverse. When Justice Ginsburg died, Instead of having a normal process, they jammed it through right before the election, knowing there was a good chance that Trump wouldn't be reelected. So both of those seats were really stolen in a way. And that's not how I used to feel about this process. And it's not the way the process should be. It's been a very bad period and it needs to be repaired. Let's talk about what happened toward the end of President Obama's term. His nominee to the Supreme Court was, at that time, Judge Merrick Garland, uh, now Attorney General uh, Merrick Garland. This was literally denying a president who had been elected overwhelmingly the right to have that seat filled by somebody he nominated. And it was unprecedented. 
So let's just dig into that for a little bit. The Supreme Court confirmation process has always been contentious. Why was that time during which Merrick Garland wasn't given a hearing? What was unfair about it as opposed to just, you know, maybe the Democrats didn't play their cards right? What about that timing made the process unfair? Well, actually, the process for Supreme Court nominations hasn't always been contentious. In recent memory, yes. But going back in our history of our country, um, it was sort of traditional to have large votes, bipartisan votes in favor of Supreme Court nominees. For example, when I voted for Breyer or Ginsburg, in fact, when I voted for Chief Justice Roberts, it was not particularly contentious. There was some dispute, but it was, it was not overly political and it was bipartisan. And so this changed with some of the disputes that have happened in recent years. But in American history, this has generally been viewed as something that should not be so political. So this really is very different. And of course, not even giving a hearing to a presidential nominee for several hundred days, it's just simply outrageous. Thank you for reminding us that history in the world didn't just start uh, 15 years ago. Uh, let's talk about Justice Barrett's confirmation. Now, you say that there almost the exact opposite happened. It was, what, two months left in President Trump's term when he nominated her to replace Justice Ginsburg? How much time was left? I forgot exactly. I think she died in September, and of course the election was in early November, so it was just a few weeks. Explain why that was unfair or improper, or instead one party said, we're holding the cards now, and we're going to play them. We're playing to win. Tell people why you think that's inappropriate in the context of a Supreme Court seat. Well, I know it's inappropriate because I was involved in this process directly four times as a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, twice under a Democratic president and twice a Clinton and twice under a Republican president, George Bush. And in every case, whoever was controlling the Senate, whatever the process had been, it was done in an orderly manner. And what I mean by an orderly manner is there was a, a gradual process where the nominee came over and started meeting with each of the senators on the Judiciary Committee and the other senators over a process of several weeks while various background checks and other things were done on the nominee. Then we were able to, and I, by the way, I had a chance to meet personally with each of those four uh, for over an hour in my office to get to know the nominee because this is a lifetime appointment. Then we had a, a basically a very long week of hearings. We all got a decent chance to ask questions for a significant amount of time, as well as a private session that's typically held after the fact. Then the process was brought to the floor of the Senate in an orderly manner. And, you know, I have to say that in all four cases, I felt that regardless of who was in charge, and there were different parties in charge, it was a fair and clean process. And it wasn't a rush job trying to get in front of an election. And it was held at a time that was appropriate. So, you know, it's not like a Democrat or Republican thing. That's just the way it was always done. And uh, it's a shame that it's been changed. What I'm happy about, I'm confident that this United States Senate's going to do it right, that it's going to be done in a fair, gradual way and not trying to jam it through in five minutes. So let's think about the political strategy for a second. If you are President Biden, and you want your nominee confirmed, and you barely have the Senate as it is, and frankly, you don't have a strong enough hold on the Senate, uh, even amongst Democrats in your own party, in order to get your priorities through as you would like, don't you kind of have to rush in case 
you lose a seat or two, and then, you know, your any nominee might be hamstrung for years as opposed to hundreds and hundreds of days. <laughs> so Absolutely. don't you kind of have to rush strategically? Well, that moral dilemma would have occurred had this happened in June or July of this year, but that's not going to be a problem. They have plenty of time to do this. In so when you say rush, uh, this is enough time. If we start the process oh, now, yeah. between now and October is enough time for a considered deliberation. Oh, there's no question. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> normally I would say the process is about a two or three month process. It's interesting what you say about how the process wasn't always so contentious because, you know, there is this sense, wouldn't you say, that judges... Uh, the judiciary in general and the Supreme Court in particular is supposed to be above politics. It's supposed to be of, you know, the passions of the brawls that you and your former colleagues in the Senate had. Like the Supreme Court is supposed to rise above politics. Do you think that the court still has that perception? Do you, I mean, do people see the court as an apolitical institution? No, it's one of the worst times in the history of this country in terms of the perception of the Supreme Court. And that's why we at the American Constitution Society are saying, look, we need to actually reform the court because the way that this process was occur occurred has undercut people's view that it's a legitimate process. And, you know, I really believe what you just said, that the court, the judges should be not people that you know what they're going to do based on their politics. And you know, I go back longer than you do, so I, I actually remember when uh, we had justices appointed who would always surprise you. You know, Earl Warren, the famous writer of Brown versus Board of Education, he wasn't a Democrat. He was a Republican from Bakersfield, California. He was a Republican governor of California. William Brennan, one of the most famous progressive justices, a hero to many of us on the progressive side. He was a Republican. He was appointed by a Republican. And then uh, President Kennedy appointed somebody named uh, Byron White, who had actually been a football star. Anyway, a lot of Democrats and liberals were mad because he was too conservative. But here's what was good about it. We never knew for sure what people were going to do. And that's the way it should be. You, you shouldn't be able to look at a voting card uh, of a political party. And so this has changed. And now the court is giving a strong uh, perception, what Justice Sotomayor called a stench, potentially, of being highly political and going with for political and ideological outcomes instead of the rule of law. And I believe that President Biden will appoint somebody who stands for the Constitution and the rule of law, and it's extremely important to get back to that. But is it fair to give that cast to all of the Supreme Court decisions of late? Certainly there are those abortion cases. You can see the influence of, or rather, you know, you can see a political bent. But there have been other cases, for instance, uh, cases with respect to presidential powers and the like, where the justices, and then if you want to take this argument and go filter it down to the lower courts, judges, you know, judges who were appointed by President Trump, they said, you know what, we're not advancing uh, this nonsense about stolen elections. This Supreme Court, Trump appointed justices have said, you know what, uh, the presidential powers do not extend as far as you would like. So. Isn't there still some unpredictability that uh, folks can hold on to, even in this court, as contentious as the appointment process has become? Isn't there still a little bit? Absolutely, Tanya. And that, that's a very important and fair thing to say. The truth is that not everything that the court is doing is wrong. And yes, the, the decisions that have to do with not letting Trump get away with the, uh, a definition of executive power 
uh, are very important. And, you know, there were, I would say Chief Justice Roberts in a number of cases in the last term certainly voted in, in key cases, obviously not throwing out Obamacare, uh, the Maui case having to do with clean water. That is true. However, when it comes to two of the most fundamental things in our system, the court is not acting legitimately. The gutting of the voting rights, starting with the Shelby County decision in 2013, was one of the most damaging decisions that has led to this attack on voting rights. And this is very partisan in nature and very, very inappropriate. And I'm sorry to say that Chief Justice Roberts has been very much part of it. The other is the decision now to apparently go after long-established constitutional rights. The right to choose is a clearly established precedent going back 50 years. And the idea that this court can suddenly say, well, you know, we really don't like that anymore. That is not a legitimate approach. And so you have to decide, you can't say that everything they do is wrong. I don't believe that. And I don't want to say that because I want to restore the court's legitimacy. But when they start playing in these two fields, they are going in an area that is extremely damaging to our system of government, to our democracy, and to the rule of law. And you have to, in other words, you don't count up the number of cases that are good or bad. You have to say, these are so serious that, that it has to be called out. And that's what we're doing. And if I understand you correctly, Russ, you're also taking issue with the confirmation process, the way in which the process took a turn uh, that was different from what happened when, you know, years before. Uh, a process where Merrick Garland didn't get a hearing uh, and a process where you contend Amy Coney Barrett was rushed through under circumstances where, you know, previously they said, we're not going to do that. What sorts of Supreme Court reforms would you advocate? There wasn't really a need to have these kind of time limits in place for Supreme Court nominees in the past, because as I said, it used to be a much more genial process. But the Senate, I think, should create a rule on its own, it can do it on its own, that says, look, when there's a nominee for Supreme Court, you have to consider it for a minimum number of days and a maximum number of days. And, you know, just make it a rule that applies to the Senate. So that the Senate can do on its own. But there are also are reforms that should occur that are directly related to the Supreme Court. And one is to get to do something about this so-called shadow docket, which is this thing that's a new abuse really in the Supreme Court. What it is, is what happened with this Texas abortion case, is they managed to keep that law in place and it continues to prevent women from exercising the right to choose in Texas without having an actual hearing, public hearing, and without a real opinion in the case. This is not the way the Supreme Court should act on constitutional cases. And then going beyond that, we think the two most fundamental reforms of the whole court that should be considered now, and we, again, I would not have thought this years ago until I saw these abuses. One is add some seats to the Supreme Court to make up for this theft. Water is to create a term limit to have, and, and many conservatives have supported this too, maybe an 18 year term limit for a Supreme Court justice that they go on, but it's not for life, it's for 18 years. I think a lot of us think that would be better than having somebody hanging on, literally someone like Justice Ginsburg who was so ill simply because she wanted somebody else to choose her successor. And the same thing happened with Justice Breyer. I mean, today he decided to retire, but uh, he was not happy that he was being pressured by progressives to retire. Uh, but obviously the motivation was that people felt like, uh-oh, what's going to happen in the next election? So one of the ideas out there is to give every president two choices. In other words, every two years, 
the president gets to pick a Supreme Court justice. So people would know when they vote for somebody, they would know that that person, whoever becomes president, gets to do that. I've come to the view that would be a much more dignified and appropriate thing than having, you know, superannuated people trying to hang around on the court who are ill. It's something really untoward about that. And I'm sure was not what the founders intended. Well, I don't know. One might say it's equally untoward to suggest that uh, in an era where 80s, the new 60, uh, that somebody should retire. I'm, I'm interested in what you just said. Justice Breyer didn't really want to go, according to your information, but he was being pressured to leave while the Democrats still had control. I do think that, I don't, I don't know from personal experience, but from comments he made, he indicated that he was happy with his role. He felt he could continue in his role, but the truth is that many progressives were concerned. And I know that he made his own decision, but um, yes, and now let me just say he has a super, slightly superannuated person myself. Uh, and a term <laughs> limit does not mean you can't stay on the court. Uh, maybe we'll stop having to nominate people that are like 40 or 50 and you could really nominate some of the most distinguished jurists in the country at age 60 or 70, and then they could stay there till later. But people should not feel that because they went on for ideological reasons at age 40, they have to stay there until age 90. That strikes me as kind of unfair to future generations to have their own impact on the law when you have these people that, and by the way, the last three were all like 50 years old. I mean, they're going to be on there when our law students today are in their 60s. This isn't really the way in which the Supreme Court should function. It's sort of like uh, previous generations controlling the future. But isn't the whole point of having a court to have a repository of information and precedents? Judicial decisions don't aren't supposed to just change with administrations. So if we allow that sort of, you know, continual movement on the Supreme Court. Wouldn't that further undercut the notion of its legitimacy as a stable institution that we can trust to rise above whatever our passions of the moment are? Yeah, I don't think so. I think the best thing would be a court that's a mixture of people from different periods. And that's what having this kind of 18 year limit could do. Uh, people would be gradually going off and gradually going on. And I think one of the things that most undercuts the court's legitimacy is the feeling that that all the people on the court don't even know what we're talking about when we're talking about some of these tech things, when we're talking about climate change. I mean, they, the court should include people that have fresh and new perspectives, as well as you correctly suggest people that are have been there longer. And I think that's sort of how it would work. Let's talk about another one of the reforms you mentioned, increasing the number of justices. We haven't always had nine. Uh, I think at the founding of the country, we had six, and then the number changed at different times. Abraham Lincoln wanted to make sure there were anti-slavery justices, so he changed the number. There were efforts to present. I mean, th that number has gone back and forth, or it's changed. I shouldn't say it's gone back and forth. Uh, most recently, FDR wanted to increase the number of justices in order to ensure that his New Deal reform survived. People really didn't like it back then. But you support that? ACS is in favor of increasing the number? We think there are different ways to change the composition of the court. One way would be to add some justices uh, because of the way in which these other seats were stolen. Something has to be done to make up for that. Maybe there's a way that those seats could be potentially temporary. I know that justices serve for life at this point, but if you actually create seats that are only 18 years and they expire, you could do that. So it isn't a permanent thing. It would be a balancing thing to do. Another idea out there 
is to you know stick with the justices we have, have nine justices, but have the Court of Appeal judges sit on panels with the justices. The, the Constitution does not prevent that. So, so you could have four Supreme Court justices, three Court of Appeal justices, and they could decide. And that way you could have some variety and veering of this and not have it all locked down. So I think this is a uh, something that should be considered. You have to make up for this abuse of the process. Unlike the term limit thing that might require a constitutional amendment, this Congress can and the president can do and have done. There's no number in the Constitution of Justices that is required. And when you talk about increasing the number, it's interesting. So it's not just okay, now we have nine, we're going to appoint two more of ours for 11, which might then say then, you know, uh, when the election changes, like if the election majority shifts, okay, we're going to add two more. Now it's 13. You just floated what sounded like a more nuanced process where you kind of have a front bench. I mean, to just for bad analogy, but kind of a front bench, back bench. There are four of the Supreme Court justices, four of the nine might hear a case and then maybe five circuit judges who would rotate and would hear that. So you could the composition of the court hearing a particular case would change. The number of Supreme Court justices wouldn't necessarily change. Is that that's one of the ideas that's been out there? A lot of scholars have yeah. looked at this much more carefully than I have. So some have talked about uh, basically designating all court of appeals justices as potential, you know. Supreme Court justices for purposes of a particular case or particular groupings of cases. So there are various ways this can do, some of which may seem less political than others, and maybe we should look at those. Is there any judge or justice, Russ, for whom you voted while you were on the Judiciary Committee, uh, who you now regret? <laughs> now you're like, I really wish I hadn't done that. Is there anybody? Not really. There are moments when my vote for Chief Justice Roberts makes me feel bad because of what he's done on voting rights. But there are moments when I see him protect the Supreme Court and the country by uh, upholding Obamacare against very harsh conservative criticism. So no, I'm fairly comfortable with the votes I took. But there are days when I feel pretty bad about it. When you were in the Senate and, you know, you pointed out at the beginning of this conversation that the Supreme Court confirmation process wasn't always as contentious as it is right now. Some say the Senate has never been as contentious or acrimonious as it is right now. Was the Senate as nasty? I mean, it just seems like people, most of them don't really like each other, or at least they can't admit to liking each other in public. Uh, was it well, like you, that you, when you were there? No, you got it right there when you said they're not admitting that they that they like each other. Yeah, the truth is that a lot of what's going on now is is a show for the demands from the, the the right and the left for people to not cooperate with the other side, and that's a shame because there was a much more collegial environment. I think it's starting to get better again in some ways. There are people like Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia who's trying to work with some Republican senators on reasserting Congress's role on war powers. There's some cooperation going on. There, there was in the last Congress with uh, Cory Booker and Senator Grassley on prison reform. But overall, it's become much more partisan. And I think a lot of it is for show. I don't think these people really hate each other. I think they just feel like they can't act like they like each other. But then the show 
in some ways uh, starts to dictate the reality because if, you know, I mean, you got to think that if someone starts posting and tweeting some of the things that are being posted and tweeted, I mean, and it is nasty. Most people I know could not get away with some of the social media posts that the people who are ostensibly running the country can get away with. Most people would not be able to get away with it. Has governing become so performative that people just don't care about running the country anymore? Well, it sometimes feel like people just care about staying in their current job rather than trying to figure out what to do to solve problems. I mean, I can't understand anybody that would have defended Donald Trump most of the time, and especially those Republicans, many of them, who somehow went along with this idea that the election was screwed up. I mean, the only thing that explains it to me is that they're so desperate to still be called senator that they'll do anything. You know, yeah, I love being called a senator for a while. You know, and after a while, it gets old. You know, it's, it's OK. But it's not a reason to, like, give up your every reason you went there and everything you believe in. Frankly, I find it hard to understand. It's not like you get paid millions of dollars to do it. I, I don't get it. So going back to the courts for a moment uh, before I let you go, we are now about to start the process of uh, considering and reviewing a, a new Supreme Court nominee. What are the qualities, Russ, that you think make for a good judge? Well, there are certain eternal things that you would think about, you know, talent, uh, understanding of the issues, getting along with other people, but you have to look at the moment. And in this moment, it needs to be somebody who will stand up for constitutional rights and for the rights of people to vote. These are foundational to our system. As long as the person is committed to that, and at the same time is a person who believes in the idea of trying to be as impartial as possible, to decide each case on its merits is what needs to happen. Somebody who you don't know for sure what they're going to do based on their ideology or their political party. And finally, I hope this nominee provides us with more diversity on the court. It is a terrible truth that we have never had an African-American woman on the United States Supreme Court. When you talk about someone who has a strong sense of voting rights and wanting to protect uh, that really being foundational to our, to our democracy, really though, the impact of this nominee, whoever it is, assuming a confirmation, it's really politically neutral. I mean, they would be replacing a seat that was already reliably in support of things like voting rights, right? So it's kind of a long game then. Absolutely. I mean, look, uh, it's six to three, it appears, in terms of the, especially some of the extremely conservative members who are devoted to undoing various constitutional rights. And that's why we are demanding, in addition to having a good process here, working every day at the American Constitution Society to fill those uh, court of appeal seats and district court seats, we believe we have to have reform of the Supreme Court. Are there any uh, potential nominees being floated about whom you're particularly excited or about whom ACS is particularly excited? Yes, but I was instructed not to talk about it. <laughs> oh. Oh my gosh, that makes me want to ask more. Yeah, that's the one thing we're not going to do because here's how right. we're different in the federal society. We don't think it's our role. It's the president that gets to make that decision. So we, of course, made recommendations for Court of Appeals justices. Some of them, some of their names are already coming up today on TV for this possible nomination. But there are many people that we would be thrilled about, and we really do respect the role of the president in making that nomination. 
tell my audience a little bit about ACS and what you do. Explain who you are, what you do, and what you mean when you say that, uh, when you draw this distinction between yourself and the Federalist Society. A lot of people may not know what the Federalist Society is. Yeah, well, they were formed as a conservative group to try to reorient the ideology of the courts and sort of prepackage people starting in law school to become very conservative justices, and they've been very successful. This organization is younger. It was formed 20 years ago, American Constitution Society, and has a very different approach. We have a grassroots approach. We have some 40,000 members across the country. We have chapters in over 200 law schools and over 50 lawyer chapters. And our idea is that we think the law should be for everybody. And it should be based on the diverse country of the 21st century, not simply based on what uh, a group of people in Philadelphia decided, even though we have to look at that and take it seriously. But let's keep in mind that there were no women in there in that room. There were no African-Americans in that room. There were no Native Americans in that room. They were excluded. And so for the Constitution to be legitimate, we need to have a 21st century version of it. So what we do is we promote those ideas through scholars and academics. We do it through our grassroots network uh, that is all over the country and, and do a lot of interesting programs. But we also do advocacy. And so we're going to be advocating for a good uh, process here on the replacement for Justice Breyer. We are advocating for uh, voting rights. We are advocating to abolish and get rid of the death penalty. And so we have a series of purposes, but basically it's the largest grassroots progressive legal organization in the country. Don't you love our constitution, Russ? I mean, when you talk about what the country looked like at the founding, you know, those guys created a document that allowed for the correction of so many of their own errors. Because as you pointed out, not only were none of those other people in the room, I mean, they looked at folks like me. Listen. I wasn't even a person to be considered a person. <laughs> they weren't even willing to uh, admit of my humanity. And so I, you, know, you remind us that our constitution is something to celebrate and protect and you know, to acknowledge. Like, it grows, the country grows. The concept of who the people and we the people are, it grows and changes. I mean, doesn't yeah, it necessarily have to? And it's under threat right now. The constitution had serious defects. And some of those defects continue to today. Things like the electoral college, which is heavily biased. So in order for the process to be complete, the constitution has to evolve and it might need to have to be changed in some ways as you're suggesting. So if that's done, if these failures uh, of this brilliant document, which even George Washington said, look, there's no way our judgment today is going to be perfect for all time. We have to figure out a way to modernize this thing in a progressive way. And the problem is, is, is some people are trying to take it back by saying you have to only do what the original intent was and what the original text said. That is a way too narrow definition for this thing to work in the 21st century in the diverse society that we live in. Do you believe that the Electoral College uh, should be abolished? Yes, I think it's completely outdated. The idea that you have a, a very small percentage of the population able to control who becomes president, and it's happened twice. Uh, it hadn't happened for 100 years, and it happened twice in the last few presidential elections. This is a very delegitimizing to the presidency and to our country. If you wanted to do something like get rid of the Electoral College, you have to have an amendment. And then that's an entirely different process. Do you think there's any realistic likelihood 
of amending the Constitution in any time in the near future? It's very difficult. I think it's possible. I am concerned that various right-wing groups are trying to put together a constitutional convention, which is allowed under our Constitution, but has never been done, and that that would move us completely in the wrong direction. So I think we would need to change the way that Article 5 works to make it more based on population. And Article 5 is the amending mechanism. So, you know, there was a time actually in the 60s where the House voted overwhelmingly for a constitutional amendment to get rid of the Electoral College. The Senate did. But as you've suggested, things are too partisan now for that to happen. So I don't think that'll happen in the near future. There's another way to get at it that we could talk about in another program, which is uh, a compact of states that would agree that whoever got the most votes nationally, that's the one they give their electoral votes to. So that that's something that I've worked on in the past. So that's another way that it might happen without a constitution. I don't know if everybody caught that, but Russ Feingold has just come up with a hack for amending the constitution. So we'll They're talk about that next time. Well, you just shared it with us. You just you just you just shared it with us. Are you optimistic about the country? You know, I am such an optimist. And these last few years have been the one time in my life that it really has pushed me. And so I'm very worried. I'm a person that will become optimistic as quickly as possible, but I don't think you should be irrational. And until I see a few of these elections run properly and people stop being at each other's throats, my optimism is not going to be where it usually is, I hate to say. What would you like to see more of? both from your political partisans and uh, folks on the other side. What would you like to see more of? I'd like to see more of people stopping this idea that everybody's their opponent. That it, I'd like people to think of themselves as part of a community and that it's exciting to have people of different backgrounds and different ethnicity and different races, that that's really a fun thing instead of something to be afraid of. And I'd like people to stop uh, pretending that certain things they know are, are, are false obviously false, some of this vaccine stuff and other things. Uh, we're never going to get anywhere unless people kind of say, like, you know, can't we possibly start talking to each other with some caring uh, again? Wise words and a very nice prescription. Russ Feingold, such a pleasure to have you here. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. 18 years in the United States Senate, now president of the American Constitution Society, an important voice in how we consider and select judges and justices in this country. So thanks very much. I, I certainly would love to have you back, certainly, especially as we continue the process of uh, considering Justice Breyer's replacement. So well, thank you. Be, that would be great. It was fun. Tanya, thank you for having me on the show. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm.